Hi. Welcome to the Reeves Tale, a medieval miscellany with Andrew Reeves, a place where I discuss things about the Middle Ages that I find interesting. And in this one, I'll be talking about dreams. What is there to those otherworldly encounters that we experience in the dark of night beyond the veil of sleep? Do they hold any revelations for us? Knowledge of events past and future? Or are they just a jumble of what we've carried around in our heads from waking life? Let's go all the way back to the ancient Greek epics of the Iliad and Odyssey, first written down in the 700s BC. There, we encounter a profound ambiguity about the nature of dreams. In the Odyssey, Penelope tells Odysseus that dreams come forth to the sleeper from one of two gates. Dreams that come from the gates of carven ivory are false, but those dreams that come from the gates of horn are true. When we read the Bible, we encounter the Egyptian pharaoh having a dream that predicts the future. He sees seven lean cattle devoured by seven fat cattle. He's unsure what it means until Joseph the Hebrew is able to use his already established ability to interpret dreams to let the Pharaoh know that Egypt will have seven abundant years followed by a famine. Following Joseph's advice, the Pharaoh has granaries constructed, and when the prophesied famine comes to pass, it finds Egypt prepared. As a result, the Pharaoh rewards Joseph handsomely. Dreams, then, might be sent by God to tell us the future, but wrapped in symbolic language that has to be decoded. That's one biblical view. But then there's another view, one that says that those who seek to understand what appear to be images of the dead, of spirits, of mysterious things in dreams are to be shunned. We read in Mosaic Law, in particular in Deuteronomy 13.5, that God's people are not, and I quote, to heed the words of those who divine by dreams. That would seem to indicate that dreams are not to be trusted, that they're part and parcel of the illicit magic that the Hebrew Bible forbids. Christianity continued with this ambiguity. Since Old Testament prohibitions on divination, dreaming, and magic remained, but God might also send dreams, as he did to Joseph, the husband of Mary, to warn him that King Herod sought to take the life of the child Jesus. In the late Roman Empire, then, dreams were profoundly ambiguous to Jew, Christian, or Greco-Roman pagan. The great Roman orator Cicero had written a philosophical work on the nature of the citizen and the state. Part of that work, called The Republic, just like Plato's work, tells of a dream in which Scipio Africanus, the general who had defeated Hannibal, appears to one of his descendants, also confusingly named Scipio. This dream vision then has the older Scipio telling the younger of the nature of the cosmos and the world. And we'll talk more about medieval cosmology in later episodes. In the late Roman Empire, that is, around the late 300s or early 400s, the Neoplatonic philosopher Macrobius wrote a commentary on the dream of Scipio to discuss which dreams are true dreams, and to explain how these true dreams come about. Macrobius wrote that there are five kinds of dreams. Two of these, he says, are useless for learning anything. Those two are the insomnium, or nightmare, and the visum, 
that is, a foggy collection of images that we encounter as we drift off to sleep. But that left three other kinds of dreams that he wrote grant us powers of divination. A famous statesman, ancestor, or god might appear to tell the dreamer of something that was about to happen. A dreamer might dream of something that ends up happening. And then there was the enigmatic dream, which, and I quote, conceals with strange shapes and veils with ambiguity the true meaning of the information being offered and requires an interpretation for its understanding. Notice here that we have the notion that dreams might tell us things in metaphors and symbolism that need interpretation. How did these dreams come about? Well, let's remember that Macrobius was a Neoplatonist. Neoplatonists were philosophers in the late Roman Empire, that is, the 200s, 300s, and 400s. They'd taken the philosophy of Plato, who believed that there was a higher reality beyond our own, and they'd made this philosophy more spiritual. They believed that the spirit world was more real than the physical world, that all reality emanates from the heavens, and that our soul comes down from heaven when we're born, and will return there when we'll die, if we've managed to surpass our earthly desires. As a Neoplatonist, then, Macrobius held that because the soul was partially separated from the body when asleep, it could see truth more clearly. Because, of course, for a Neoplatonist, truth was non-physical. Macrobius was one thinker that would be seen as an authority on all things related to dreams and dreaming all the way down through the end of the Middle Ages. Another guy is one whom you will probably end up heartily sick of hearing about if you spend any length of time on this podcast. Yes, I am talking about St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the greatest intellectuals of the late Roman world, whose writings on the Bible, on philosophy, on pretty much anything have reverberated and influenced us right down to the present. You encounter his influence everywhere in the Middle Ages. Today, though, I'm going to talk about how he influenced our understanding of dreams. When it came not only to dreams, but also to visions seen in waking, he was profoundly ambivalent. He'd argued that visions, both in dreams or in a disturbed mental state, could come from the imagination, or from good or evil spirits. Angels and demons alike could send dreams and visions, and so, he said, one had to exercise judgment as to whether a dream was true or false. Basically, if following the guidance of a dream made you a better person, then there was a good chance it was divinely inspired. But when it came to visions of the dead who appear in dreams, he was fairly certain that this was not the actual dead person him or herself, since they'd already gone to their post-mortem fate. It was, rather, an image of the deceased. So with Macrobius and Augustine, we have the two great thinkers of the medieval dream. For Macrobius in particular, we have the belief that dreams can teach us truth in metaphor, parable, and allegory. And of course, in the Hebrew Bible, dreams were also wrapped in a layer of metaphor that needed to be unwound. Over the early Middle Ages, you didn't see near as much original intellectual activity in Western Europe as you had in the days of Greece and Rome. The works of medieval Western Europe in that time were largely compilations and collections. 
You did, however, see a great deal of original thought in the Middle East, as caliphs, emirs, and sultans were lavish in their sponsorship of philosophers, just as they were of poets. The philosophers of the Golden Age of Islam are only coming into this episode incidentally in their influence on Western Europe. If you want to learn more about the Golden Age of Islamic philosophy, you should check out Peter Adamson's History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast. One of the greatest Muslim philosophers was the Iranian Ibn Sina, writing at the turn of the 11th century. His name was rendered as Avicenna when transcribed in the Roman alphabet when his works were later translated into Latin, the language of medieval Europe's intellectuals. His theory of cognition was heavily influenced by Neoplatonism, and I'm going to try to briefly describe it here. Full disclosure, when I took a medieval philosophy course in grad school, I got what can only be described as a pity A-. According to Avicenna, the imaginative power is what receives the images of things, while the cogitative power abstracts the essence of things from the imagination. But, says Avicenna, people who have extremely powerful souls, the same sort of people who can work the evil eye on someone, have an imagination that can reach into the celestial realm. These people can sometimes see visions in waking, and they can sometimes have true dreams by dint of their imaginative power. Now, that's Avicenna. I'll note that the other philosopher who was a major influence on Muslim and Christian alike namely Aristotle, tended to doubt that dreams have much in the way of interpretive power. So I've talked about the theoretical treatment of the prophetic dream. What about the practical? Well, we have all sorts of religious and philosophical precedent for the notion of a true dream, as well as the notion that a true dream comes to us concealed in metaphor and allegory that needs decoding. This will lead us to the Somniale, the dream book. What's a dream book? Well, it's what it sounds like. It's a long list of things that, if you see them in a dream, have particular interpretations for what they signify will happen to you in the future. But wait, isn't the Bible iffy on using dreams for prognostication? It is. That's why the most famous of dream books, the Somniale Danielis, was ascribed to the prophet Daniel. After all, a prophet's authority is impeccable, and so if a guide to dream interpretation came from a prophet, it was okay. I should add that, no, the Somniale Danielis was obviously not the work of the prophet Daniel. It was, to use a term I taught you folks last episode, a pseudepigraphal work that is, a work falsely ascribed to someone. Let me read to you the text of the prologue of the Somniale Danielis, and I quote, In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the chief men of the city and its whole populace asked Daniel, the seventh prophet of the children of Israel who were led captive from the holy city of Jerusalem, that he explain to them their dreams. So he wrote these things down and handed them over for reading. Nothing written here has any additions or compositions, but instead is taken directly from the translation of St. Jerome from Chaldean into Latin. Nothing in that prologue is true. 
was not written by Daniel, nor was it translated by St. Jerome, nor did it come from Babylon. So why does the Dream Books prologue give us this narrative? Well, in the first place, it's because, like I said, you need the authority of a prophet so that a work like this is okay. In addition, people of the Middle Ages, just as much as the people of ancient Rome, believed that Babylon and Egypt were sources of ancient wisdom, of magic, of knowledge going back to the dawn of history. Even so, you'll occasionally have manuscripts with the Somniala Danielis that have angry marginal notes explaining that this material is satanic and demonic and not at all allowed to the Christian reader. Plenty of people saw dream books as the illicit magic forbidden by the Hebrew Bible. Now, the dream book, particularly the Somniala Danielis, doesn't explicitly mention Macrobius's theory of dream metaphor. But it takes the biblical assumption of true dreams requiring interpretation for granted. So if you dream and see a fight with bees, that signifies violence to come. If you can't run, that signifies some sort of future hindrance. Barking dogs are your enemies talking about you. To fall into a well signifies that you'll be incarcerated. And so on. There's a whole list of so there's dreams in theory and dreams in practice. Later medieval thinkers and writers drew on these earlier works in what became a nearly standard theory of dreams. So now I'm going to look a bit at the 13th century before I talk about late medieval dream literature. Let's look in particular at Albert the Great, or Albertus Magnus, as his name appears in Latin. Albert was a Dominican friar. Friars were similar to monks, but instead of living a life confined to monasteries, they traveled around on foot preaching. The two main orders of friars were the Franciscans and Dominicans. The Dominicans were tasked with preaching Christian orthodoxy, and they, along with their Franciscan counterparts, were also some of the sharpest thinkers of Europe's growing universities. One of the greatest medieval philosophers, St. Thomas Aquinas, was a Dominican friar, for example. So Albert was a friar in Cologne. His 38 volumes of collected work indicate a broad curiosity about pretty much everything. He drew on the works of literally anyone whose writings he could get his hands on, and he wrote about speculative philosophy. He wrote about what we'd call the natural sciences, about biology, about magic, and more besides. So, of course, he would write about dreams. He was heavily influenced by Aristotle, and you'll remember that Aristotle had doubted that dreams were predictive. But Albert tells us that although Aristotle was great at physical sciences, this philosopher fell short with respect to spiritual things. Moreover, says Albert, there are too many empirically verified accounts of dreams coming true to dismiss the notion of dreams having predictive power. So when Albert the Great talks about prophetic dreams, he draws on Avicenna again. He's also one of the only philosophers from the later Middle Ages who talks about somnialis, those dream books I mentioned earlier. In so doing, he asks whether the use of the dream book is a theoretical or a practical science. 
He comes down more on the side of the practical, although in the end he hedges a bit and says that it is a scientia divina, a divine science. Given the belief that so many medievals had about dreams telling us true things via metaphor, the allegory that uses a dream as its framing narrative would be incredibly popular in the later Middle Ages. Quick note, just in case you're unfamiliar with allegory, think of it as an extended metaphor. You know how a political cartoon might have a blindfolded woman representing justice and she'll be under attack by, say, the president of the U.S.? Well, an allegory takes this sort of metaphor and will extend it to make it a whole literary work. So, for example, look at the 16th century allegory, The Fairy Queen. You have a knight named Red Cross, and he stands for England and Holiness. Over the course of a very long poem, he fights enemies that represent concepts. So Error is a monster that spews out books teaching false doctrine, and he slays this monster that vomits forth false literature. In that same work, carnal desires are represented by a luxurious garden, the Bower of Bliss, which the knight destroys and tears down after he has overcome the temptation of its delights. And so on. Now that's an early modern allegory, but medievals loved that sort of thing. This would be incredibly popular in the later Middle Ages. You saw it especially in religious works. There's a 14th century religious poem, Piers Plowman, and in it the narrator opens by saying that in a summer's evening when the sun was soft, he went to sleep and began to dream. In this dream, he saw a whole world, a field full of folk, and this represented all of humankind. He then encountered other metaphorical figures, to include, fairly early on, a woman, lovely and well-clad, and she was Holy Mother the Church, who had taught him all truths from of old. The poem's author, William Langland, draws on the idea of allegory telling truth, and indeed he draws upon Avicenna's theory of imagination. Avicenna had written that imaginative power could interpret dreams by way of a dream within a dream. Langland's poem, likewise, has two episodes in which the dreamer goes further into the dream by falling asleep while dreaming and having a further dream that explains it. So that's one allegorical dream vision. There was another one, The Romance of the Rose, written in the 13th century, which was not religious but was rather secular. We're told that a man falls asleep in spring, and when he does... He dreams of seeking to pluck a beautiful rose that is guarded behind a wall. This is, of course, an allegory of sexual love told in a dream vision. It opens with the narrator asking the question of whether dreams have anything of truth or if they are lies. The poet tells us that oftentimes we have dreams in the dead of night that later come true, as Macrobius tells us. The poet then tells us of a dream in which everything happened as foretold, and thus the allegory begins. The actual poem deserves a whole episode of this in itself, since it's really two poems. There's the first part that is an introspective work of psychological metaphor. 
That first part was never completed. Later on, it was completed by a fellow named Jean Demain, and the completion is the one that survives in the most works. And it is entirely different in tone. It's longer, it's more obnoxious. Seriously, I need to do a whole episode on the Romance of the Rose just to talk about how weird both the original and its continuation are. So by the later Middle Ages, medieval people had taken the theory of true dreams and applied it to literature, to philosophy, and to dream books for practical use. I want to close with another area of discussion of dreams, namely dreams of the dead. Have you ever had a dream of a dead loved one? Have you ever wondered if it was a communication from beyond? Well, let's talk about Gerald of Wales, the 12th century churchman who spent much of his life convinced that he should be made Archbishop of St. David's, and who was continually disappointed in this ambition. He wrote about Ireland when he accompanied the forces of the English king's invasion, and he talks about Irish werewolves, about which I'll talk more when I do a series of episodes on werewolves. He also writes about the failings of clergy and how he's the only one who knows what he's doing. But he also writes about ghosts. He definitely believes that the Irish are sort of magical, since he believes that werewolves are common in Ireland. He also believes that the Irish frequently have visions and dreams that predict the future. He also tells us about his own dream visions, many of which predict, incorrectly it turns out, that he'll be made Archbishop of St. David's. And in one of his dreams, he tells us how his half-brother saw his deceased stepmother, i.e. Gerald's mother. She warned Gerald's half-brother not to take part in a military campaign in Ireland. He ignored the advice and was killed in battle. And of course, visions and dreams of ghosts were said to happen in the darkest part of the night, near what we'd call four in the morning. And of course, that is when REM is at its most intense. But as for ghosts and what medieval people believed they told of a world beyond the grave, they will be the subject of a future episode or series of episodes. For now, I'll close with Geoffrey Chaucer's opening line of his poem, The House of Fame. God turn us every dream to good. If you'd like to support this work of mine that I'm doing in addition to my normal duties as a professor, please go over to the Patreon link and subscribe. I'm Andrew Reeves, and this is The Reeves Tale. Thanks for listening.